Hello and welcome. This is the Bariatric Eating Real Talk podcast, and I'm Susie Shaw. If you are new to our podcast, bariatric eating is more than just talk. We support nearly a million post-ops in our Facebook-based support groups, which you can join if you like after you listen. I'll tell you where you can find us at the end of the episode. We've created the most successful plan for bariatric regain on the planet. There's not a doctor's program or hospital plan or anyone who has addressed regain and the regain crisis with anywhere near our success rate. Thousands of people have used our Inspired Diet, along with our help and our support to take their lives back, even when it seemed like things were hopeless. Those who help you in our support groups are actually post-ops. We've had regain, so we know how it feels, but we've also lost that regain, and we can help you find your way back into those smaller clothes that are in your closet. We have specific tools for you. We'll help you set goals, create food lists, and even help you with what meals to eat. And we've got our own product line. So we go beyond just ideas and help you with real time, with real tools that really help. Our support is made up of people who are just like me. And collectively, we've spent the last 20 years helping post-op lose regain and learn how to change their habits so that the weight stays off for good. And I'm pretty sure we can help you too. So let's get started. Throughout the weight loss community, we hear a lot of post-ops talking about food triggering them. And it often seems to dovetail with the use, especially in the weight loss surgery community, with the term food addiction. And to be specific here, I'm talking about when people mention how specific foods will trigger their addiction. Um, Here I'm talking about things like, you know, protein bars or protein chips and crunchers and things like that. But here's the deal. Now, there's been a little bit of a slight shift in how the term food addiction is being viewed from a clinical standpoint, but it's currently not formally recognized as a mental disorder. And I did use the DSM-5 as my source for this information. This is the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that's used by mental health professionals to help guide in the diagnosing of patients. The DSM-5 refers to the latest print, um, the latest version that's in print right now. There are a ton of studies, though, on this topic, and things are always shifting. And, of course, many mental health professionals may argue with that designation right now. And that's okay because what I'm trying to do right now, I'm not trying to prove or disprove that food addiction exists at all. That's not my intent. And if you happen to be working with a mental health professional or a doctor who's telling you that you have a food addiction, I applaud you for seeking the help and hope with all of my heart that you follow through with the treatment plan that you're on and that you get into recovery that you need to heal. I'm only mentioning this specific information, and I did a little bit of research on it because I wanted to add a little layer of knowledge for those who suspect that they may have a food addiction but haven't taken action on it yet. Here because I feel like I've been kind of talking in circles, even though I haven't been talking very long. With this information, more specifically, I'm saying that addiction as a whole is a really complex mental state, and it can apply to all sorts of things. But despite the times that we're living in where obesity is so prevalent, food addiction isn't fully recognized along with more formalized addictions. And here I'm not just talking about substances. I'm, there are behavior-based addictions like gambling that are recognized. Anyways, as a former morbidly obese person, I have to say that I take some confidence in that. It gives me some hope that I'm actually the one in control of things, and that's why I wanted to discuss this specifically today. So I need to get back to my point. I have to say that food addiction is a term that's really abused on a regular basis within the weight loss surgery community. 
um, simply because most of us haven't been diagnosed with having one, yet we're all quick to blame it when things aren't going our way with our weight loss. It's become a crutch that a lot of people, and again, I have to mention that by people, once again, I'm adding myself into that pile, as I absolutely have used that multiple times within my own weight loss surgery journey. But it's one that people rely on because it's an easy way to put a real finger on what's going on inside our heads. Our heads, Verbalizing how complex our actions and our feelings in regards to how we eat is actually a really difficult process. So it's human nature, I think, to try to sum it up as simply as possible. And addiction fits that kind of check that, checks that box for us. But coming from someone who once deeply felt that I had my own deep food addiction and from someone who's been touched by actual substance abuse and addiction, I can say this with a huge level of confidence that's rooted, again, in personal experience, both in trying to unwind my own food issues and standing by helplessly as someone incredibly close to me was stolen and ripped from my life because of their actual substance addiction. While I often felt that I was powerless to food, that there was nothing to hold me back from making that good choice I knew I needed to make in the back of my head, There was also never a moment where I would have taken money out of my daughter's piggy bank to buy a chocolate bar when I had a craving. When my doctor put me on the pre-op diet, I was able to follow it to the letter. And yeah, I had a headache and I felt like crap the whole time. But I didn't need medication to stop seizures or hallucinations like addicts need when they're trying to get clean. Despite the intense cravings I had for it, I was able to put zero-calorie sweetener in my coffee every single day during that pre-op diet. Um, back in, I started that back in 2014 and I used that instead of the sugar that I used my entire adult life. I was in my late thirties at that point. And honestly, since then, it's been about six years now. I haven't once reverted or fallen off that sugar wagon. An actual addict wouldn't have been able to just stop overnight with the sugar and switch to something else. We've all heard the stories about recovering addicts and know that many addicts relapse, even if only briefly. And really, an alcoholic or drug addict isn't going to stop drinking or doing their drug of choice by swapping whatever that is for a glass of Perrier with a slice of lime, are they? First specific food addiction seriously. Have you been able to sit back and say no to something despite claiming addiction to it? Most drug addicts and alcoholics cannot do that. They can't just say to themselves, hey, I've got to get back on track and give this up because my pants don't fit. So things are getting really real and then have a big glass of water and take a a walk around the block to clear their heads and move on from the craving. Because that's what we're dealing with. It's not an addiction. It's a craving that we've grown accustomed to answering so often that we can't easily say no because we've created the habit of saying yes. And to really drive this home, while people do steal to prevent going hungry, and I'm here, I'm talking about actual like starvation, I don't know of any reports where people robbed a liquor store to make sure they could handle their big back attack. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but theft and even beyond that into some really horrible, unethical, and dangerous acts are what addicts do to ensure that they don't miss a hit of their drug of choice. Addiction also robs your friends and families of you. And while your life wasn't normal by any means before you had weight loss surgery, it's truly unlikely that you put yourself in a food coma so badly that you missed work or that you binged on a a bag of french fries and chicken nuggets so hard that you forgot to pick your kid up at school. 
And this is one of those things I had to come to terms with through a lot of therapy and a lot of mental work. While I didn't have an addiction, and while I don't have an addiction, I certainly had issues to figure out that I'm still working on to this day. I'm not trying to downplay those at all. They're significant. In fact, most of us who eat to the point where we had to have weight loss surgery and even regain after weight loss surgery absolutely have some food-related issues. But I wanted to share a short list about what I've learned about me, and I have to wonder, do these apply to you as well? So number one, I love food. I really do. I love to cook. I love to eat. I love talking about food. I love cooking for people. It's true. Number two, I may not have been chewing my calories, but I did manage to get a heckle of just a lot of them inside of me somehow. And if you had weight loss surgery and a regain like I did, you did too. People don't get to 330 pounds, and some of us were more by being dainty eaters and pushing the plate away when we got a little bit satisfied. Now, I'm using that weight as a metric. Some of us were 250 pounds, but also were under five feet tall. Or whatever your starting weight or your highest known weight was, my point is that we all qualified for bariatric surgery because we weren't just overweight. We were actually obese, and many of us were what they refer to as morbidly obese. And some of us were even super morbidly obese. And this is a bit of a tangent here, but you have got to start being honest with yourself. You don't need to shout it from the rooftops or tell anybody, but you have got to admit to yourself that you had weight loss surgery because your eating was totally out of control and that there was no hope except for medical intervention that included removing most of your stomach permanently so that you could lose some weight. Those of us who had regains... We did so not by being dainty eaters who were mindful of their portions as a post-op. We regained because we didn't learn our lessons. We didn't fix whatever was driving us to eat like we did as pre-ops. And sure, the foods may not have been the same kinds for all of us. Plenty of post-ops, I'm one of them, regain on cheese and meat plates or regain while following a low-carb, high-protein diet. And sure, even for me, I may not have put a lot of food on my plate during every meal during my regain, I basically grazed on small bits and slider foods all through the day. And spending as much time as I have working with other post-ops, I know that that's more common than people realize or want to admit. We get in this sort of cycle of snacking just because it's time and not because we have hunger. Because I think in the early days, hunger is so tricky to identify, we get in a habit of eating often. Many of us also don't realize that those two-ounce meals every two hours that we're told to follow during our healing phase, you know, as we progress into solid foods right after surgery, that's not how we're meant to eat forever. But I'm getting off topic again. I'm so sorry. The third truth bomb that I had about my, my history with eating and food, I have disordered eating. I may actually have binge eating disorder. I don't know. I haven't been formally diagnosed because, honestly, the label of what I have isn't important to me. So I haven't sought that out. But the hard, hard, cold fact here is that my entire life was truly disordered when it came to food. And I'm betting that yours was too. I wasn't addicted, but I did teach myself habits and was often triggered by specific events because of those habits. And this is another pattern that I've noticed within our support groups. We've got about probably about half a million people throughout our different support systems. And over the years, it's become clear to me that while our tastes were not the same in regards to what kind of foods we gravitate towards, we were and are in alignment with our habits in regards to food and calories and when we eat. 
Now, I want to point out, just again, to kind of drive this one home, specifically what I mean by disordered behavior, because that's a really weird term, I think, for a lot of people. Some of the disordered things that I did um, were I was able to, I was unable, rather, I, I couldn't fathom the idea of eating a meal without dessert, no matter how full I was. And a good example that I think a lot of people can identify with is think about like Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner. How often did you eat multiple servings of different things? And you felt stuffed at the end of the meal. You were full, but you still had some pie at the end of the meal, didn't you? Or maybe you were like in my family where you, ha- you help clean up and, and do the dishes and put some stuff away. And then you sat down for a plate of dessert. And you know that plate of dessert that I'm talking about where you take a tiny sliver of every dessert on the table to try them all? <laughs> it's only been about 45 minutes after you had the meal, and there's no physical way you're actually hungry, but you still have that dessert, right? You were eating dessert not because you were hungry again. It's because you were there and you wanted it, just like I did. I did it. If you did it, you know, just think about it. Um, But I also want you to think about that incredible needs most of us have for like a bedtime snack or an evening snack that a lot of us fight with to this day. Or maybe you eat on the couch while watching TV, even though it's only been an hour and a half since your last meal. Um, As a pre-op, I used to grab a snack at the vending machine at my office every afternoon, and I actually looked forward to it most days. I remember counting down. The same um, goes for getting a snack as I left the grocery store, even though it was less than a five-minute drive home most days. In fact, to this day, even though I haven't done it in years, I still look at that rack of candy and chips. It's a habit that I've resisted and haven't given into, but I haven't quite broken yet. And another thing I used to do a lot too, after grocery shopping, I'd get home with a trunk full of groceries and I'd order takeout because I just didn't have the energy to cook. I could go on, but I used food in such a way that I created odd patterns that resulted in habitual overeating. Even though, again, I wasn't eating a lot at every meal, I was eating almost constantly. And if you're listening to this, I bet that you did too. And the reason I'm saying that is because I've heard in our support groups that many of you can actually identify with most of what I say in all of these episodes so far. You identify with it on a really personal level. People have told me in messages and in emails that it's like they wrote the episode or that I've been following them around and taking notes. And if you've been listening for a while, by now you're sure that I've get, you, I'm sure that you get that I'm not doing this to make you feel bad or because I'm judging you. I can't do those things because these are things that I did. These are the things that I do when I let my guard down, in fact. But I want to point out right now Even though I've said it a few times, while we were all very, very different individuals, my experience working with tens of thousands of post-ops in our support groups has taught me that most of us with weight loss surgery are, in fact, incredibly similar, which is why our Facebook support group is so large and so successful and why we actually have a reputation for being strict. We are post-ops. We do get it. We haven't forgotten where we're coming from, but we do know what the excuses are because we use them too. And that's why we shut down things that aren't so helpful really, really quickly. We're not being mean. We're not judging you. We're leading by example. We're leading by showing you what the real answer is. And we're not encouraging bad ideas. And we don't even entertain them. And that's why these podcast episodes hit so close to home. That's why we keep doing them, too. What I say here is as much for me as it is for you. We're in this together, whether you know me, whether you're in our groups or not. Now, having said all of that, 
I think it's important to note that specific foods can trigger an issue that's stemming from an eating disorder like binge eating disorder. And that's why it's key to get the professional help that you can before you create a bigger issue with your relationship with food. While not commonly discussed, it is uncommon for someone to be obese and not have a history of disordered eating. While an eating disorder is not an addiction, and while it's just words at the end of the day, words do matter, especially when labeling ourselves. Saying that you're an addict gives you an out that allows you to backslide. But we've talked about this in a couple episodes before, but calling addiction without getting help actually victimizes yourself. While admitting that you have an eating disorder can be hard, it does give you a basic jumping off point to realize that something's wrong. Addiction is what it is, but a disorder, by definition, points to something that's wrong, something that needs to be fixed, something that can be fixed. And for many, realizing that is a huge aha moment. So having said that, I want to talk a little bit about triggers. More specifically, I want to go back over something that I touched on earlier in the episode, a common one, and I'm going to use it as an example. A lot of people find themselves, especially in the early days, staying away from protein bars or maybe sugar-free desserts. And even we make these really wonderful protein crunchers, but a lot of people are kind of scared of them because many of us love to eat candy bars and cake and chips a little bit too often. Um, A lot of people point to those and they think that they're going to be triggered by, by having them in the house, that they'll trigger an addiction and that they'll end up eating the whole box or the whole package in one sitting. But it's time to stop using that as limitation. We simply cannot go through life avoiding things that will help us because of our mindset. If you're one of those people, I want you to get help. Seriously, make the call right now and get yourself into therapy to take some control over your mindset and your relationship with food, good or bad. That relationship with food you have is absolutely going to make or break you. And if therapy isn't an option because of insurance or whatever, Google search some online online resources. Look for some self-help books about overeating, binge eating, even books about addiction if you want to go that route and feel deeply that you have an addiction. But you have got to stop running away from things that trigger you and run towards healing. I'm not saying to run towards those foods, but find ways to get through that. Stop sticking your head in the sand and saying you have an addiction and leaving it at that. Avoidance is not recovery. You are way too smart to be controlled by a protein bar or whatever you are avoiding for life. And you have got to stop living in fear of things as simple as food. Food is fuel. Just like it's not going to help you get through a rough patch, it's not going to save you from yourself if you aren't the one in control. I can honestly say that it took me a long time, but I'm at the point now where I can watch people eat the foods that I used to rely on heavily as a pre-op and during my regain even. I can smell it. I can cook it if I have to. I can even buy it for people. It doesn't bother me because I know that it doesn't help me. It's not my food. And that phrase is actually how I do things like avoid eating my daughter's Halloween candy or emptying her Easter basket. It's not my candy. I don't touch my husband's box of Twinkies because those are his, not mine. Now, I will say that I do not cook multiple meals. When I'm entertaining or cooking for my, cooking for my friends and family, I cook food that suits me. I also do things like take the time to make a chicken rather than picking up a bucket of chicken if I have to bring a meal somewhere. I don't stop at Costco and buy those big plastic cakes or pies in plastic domes. I make a beautiful cake with no sugar added, and I'll buy um, like a pretty platter at TJ Maxx or Home Goods, like real cheap, and then I'll give it to the hostess as a gift so that I don't have to worry about taking that cake home. 
you can get there too. At the end of the episode, I'll share where to find our recipes so that you can use them to get through special occasions and join in with everybody instead of pretending that you like sipping on coffee while everybody else eats chocolate cake. Because to be honest, I've tried that route. And while I made it through okay, it feels like crap. And it's totally fraught with way too many emotions to be worth doing for the rest of your life. Let me tell you that pulling the lid of a cup off of a cup of sugar-free jello when everybody else is eating pie is going to mess with you more than making a sugar-free berry pie. But you have got to take this by the horns. Get to the root of your issues and stop claiming addiction or that you need to avoid the foods that will help you feel more normal because it triggers you. And again, as always, this is if you want to, of course. Like everything else in this podcast series and life in general, it's all just a choice you have to make. So, I want you to be open about this next part because while I've been talking about negative triggers today, I do want to do more than just preach to you about what you need to do. I want to help you with a kind of a weird, neat tool that I ran across a few months back, and I, I tried it myself. I'm sharing this because it worked, and I'd like to flip the script about triggers and start using the word to help you set some good habits up. Trigger, after all, is just something that initiates another event. So let's set you up with some triggers that you can rely on daily to change your life a little bit. So what I want to do right now is I want to help you set, up your, set yourself up with a trigger that's going to remind you of your goal. Grab your phone and go to your phone's alarm clock app. There should be one native that you don't have to like download or pay for or anything like that. There should be one automatically. Within that app, there is a... Um, you know, that you can, how you can set your alarms and stuff like that. Each alarm that you can set, you can have as many alarms. I, I don't know what the max is, actually. I, I only have seven or eight set, but I'll explain why I have so many set in a second. Each alarm actually has a really cool feature, um, an alarm. Now, by default, it usually just says alarm, but you can actually customize that to say whatever you want it to, which is really kind of cool. And I know this sounds kind of hokey and stuff like that, but I actually tried this a couple months ago and I've really kind of enjoyed it. So just bear with me here, okay? I want you to put a label in an alarm that will act as a note or reminder to yourself. And again, this sounds kind of hokey, but I promise you when that alarm goes off, you're going to see that note or reminder on your phone screen. And depending on what you put it as the label, it can help you redirect your mindset to what you want most instead of what you want now. It can kind of pump you up and make you feel good about things. But it can basically be the trigger that you may need to stay focused and stay on track. Um, A specific scenario may help you understand this a little bit better. If you're still going to an office or like a, a place of work daily and you get there a couple minutes early and you get there every morning a couple minutes early so that you can spend time in the break room so you can chat with coworkers or maybe have that last cup of coffee before you start your day and stuff like that. Um, but you also find that you have a hard time staying out of the donuts and bagels that always seem to be in there for some reason. I want you to set an alarm for whatever time you get there, say if you get there at 7.45 or you know 8.15 or whatever time you start your shift. Label it focus on making smart choices or stay out of the donuts or you've got this stay on track, or whatever works for you, so that you can remind yourself to stay out of the food you know you don't want to eat to begin with. Another way to handle that, if this scenario doesn't really apply to you, have an alarm that set, goes off when you're most prone to eating when you're at home. Say that odd 8.30 p.m. hour when it's too early for bed, but you don't know what to do, so you usually have a snack and watch TV, even though you aren't really, really hungry. 
Set an alarm that says, hey, keep it up. You had a great day or something, something that's going to work for you. Another example is that if you tell yourself you're going to work out when you get home from work or home from wherever, set an alarm for the time that you get home most days. Most of us usually get home within, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of, of our, our regular time. But label it work out so that you don't find something else to do. Just give yourself that little extra push. You know, as I said before, I've been using this technique, but one of the things that I did, actually, one of my very first um, label changes, I guess you could say, my alarm, was my wake-up alarm every morning is get up and kick ass, you're awesome. And honest to God, I actually smile every time I read that, even if it's going off at 5 a.m. Sometimes we just need that little reminder or that, you know, a little bit of cheering on and stuff like that, and there's no shame in doing that yourself. Now, the really neat thing is that once these are set, you just toggle them on every day. And yeah, it's up to you, but you can set an alarm for that too. Right before you go to bed, set an alarm that says, hey, you know, remember to turn your alarms on for tomorrow. Um, another little thing, like I mentioned before, is just leave yourself a love note. Set something up that's going to say, hey, you've got this. I can do this. I'm awesome. If you want um, a short quote or something, you can get really, really specific. But I really want to challenge you to think about doing this. Think about when you seem to fall off track. A lot of us are triggered by our schedules, and we really don't realize it. Many people have no issue staying focused and on track during the work week, but we really struggle on the weekends when we're out of our weekly routine. And since COVID and quarantines and lockdowns and all of that stuff that's been going on, a lot of people are working from home from the first time. And while that's nice for a lot of reasons, I think we've all noticed by now that the home is where we keep our food. And it's all too easy to take a quick pause and run to the fridge for something to munch on. So why not set up a reminder on your phone to go off when you usually have quiet time during your work day that reminds you to refresh your water glass? Or maybe reminds you to take a break and do a quick 20-minute workout video that you keep saying you're going to do but never seem to have time for. I want you, if you're going to do this, to make it apply to you. Make it apply to your life where your issues are, where your stumbling blocks are. And to do that, you're going to have to be pretty honest about the things that you're doing every day. So take a deep breath. Step back and think critically about your day and how it usually plays out. I know it's hard and it's kind of a wake-up call, but it's really helpful to understand where you go wrong as many of us have these patterns that where we get off track at a very specific time during very specific moments. But use these little alarm reminders, these new triggers as your new trigger. Trigger the new habits that you know you want to create, the ones you want to foster until they grow into your lifestyle so that you can become the successful post-op and feel as good as you know in your heart that you should feel. I know that you can do this. So I want you to give it a shot. If you've been struggling, and if it helps you, keep it up. If not, find something to work through it. You've got to get through this, and we're here for you in every way. But it's going to be a choice for you to take action. It's going to take work. It's going to take some time. But I know that you can do that. I believe in you. Your loved ones believe in you. It's time that you started believing in you too. So with that, I'm going to close here, and I want to thank you so much for listening. I also want to urge you to take my words to heart. Come join us on Facebook. We'll hold your hand and help you through this. We can also be found on our website at www.bariatriceating.com. Once you're there, you can do a keyword search for podcasts to find all the episodes listed with show notes for each one. For this one, I'm going to link our Facebook support groups, 
some um, our recipe section. And because I know many people are listening to this as part of their work to get back on track, I'm going to link the best way we can help you with that right now. We've got a new quick start program to help you lose eight pounds fast. And if you have a question that you'd like me to tackle on an upcoming episode, send me an email at ask, that's A-S-K, at bariatriceating.com. Just to remind you, we aren't just talk. Our articles, recipes, and our entire website has been helping post-ops for nearly 20 years, and it will help you too. So please come check us out. Don't forget to review and subscribe to our podcast so that you're always updated as soon as episodes are available. And please... If you've enjoyed today's episode, pass it on to someone you think may also find it helpful, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks.